Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all This edition of The Dog Show with Julie Forbes originally aired March 4th, 2015. Julie's guest today on the show is Temple Grandin, who will be returning to the Vashon Sheepdog Classic this year, and that's happening June 8th through the 11th. And now, here's Julie. Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You're listening to Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Special show today. Eric, what a great day to take your dog out for a walk. First of all, bright and sunny. Good point. Gorgeous week. So Take him somewhere new even. Give him some new sights and smells to, Always to, a good to idea. work out. Well, um, just wanted to start off and thank our show partners, the Natural Pet Pantry, Ron Cooked Food for Dogs and Cats, Pure Air Odor Eliminator, and Jet City Animal Clinic in Seattle. All wonderful businesses. If you... Would like to advertise your business on The Dog Show with Julie Forbes? Just get in touch. You can email me, host at dogradioshow.com. Eric, there are well over 7 billion people on planet Earth. There's a lot of us. Each one of us different from everyone else. Over 7 billion unique individuals. We're like snowflakes. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot. It seems odd to me that given how many different people there are, that we tend to fear our differences rather than celebrate them. To be human is to be unique, and yet so many people strive to be just like everyone else, to fit in. Our differences can be the source of a lot of emotional pain. Our differences can make us the target of others who might make fun of us out of fear for their own unique qualities. Humans are such complex animals. Every once in a while... Someone especially unique rises in their own life and comes into focus amidst the blur of human chaos and reminds us that our differences are what make us precious. Our uniqueness is what makes us brilliant in all our own special ways. Their life is proof that anything is possible for anyone. Every once in a while, someone so incredibly different and gifted comes along and makes a massive positive impact on the world As we know it, it is in witnessing the power of their own authenticity that we get a glimpse of our own. They encourage us not to fit in. They inspire us to be brilliant in our own lives. They give us courage to simply be passionately who we are and allow us to believe that our voice deserves to be heard. In the early 1970s, a young woman in her mid-20s, Temple Grandin, approached livestock feed yards with her ideas on how to make the animal's horrific journey to slaughter less stressful and more humane. If we must take their lives, then let them live peacefully and be treated with the respect they deserve while they are in our care, all the way up until the moments before they give their life. Temple's autism allows her to think in pictures and see the world in vivid images. She has often said that words are her second language and that much like animals, she is hypersensitive to sensory input. Her insight into the minds of cattle has taught her to value the changes in details to which animals are particularly sensitive and to use her visualization skills to design thoughtful and humane animal handling equipment. As a young woman, Temple Grandin knew 
she could make a difference in the lives of livestock animals. She knew she could dramatically reduce the pain and suffering they experienced in feed yards and slaughterhouses. She not only entered a heavily entrenched industry with new ideas, but she entered it as a young woman. There were no women in feed yards in the 1970s. At first, they wouldn't listen to her, but she didn't give up and she let her work speak for her. And almost 40 years later, Dr. Temple Grandin was named in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. Dr. Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University and the author of many wonderful books, including Animals in Translation, Genetics and Behaviors of Domestic Animals, and the book that I'll be focusing on today during our conversation, which is titled Animals Make Us Human. For many animals... Temple Grandin's presence has been that of an angel of light in their dark hell. Her work has improved the quality of life for countless animals in one of the darkest corners of humanity, the mass production and slaughter of animals for food supply. For many people with autism and their families, Dr. Grandin's exceptional ability to communicate and high level of functioning educates and inspires them to give hope for a full and beautiful life for people with autism. This is a special and brilliant woman. She is a gift to the planet and the animals who walk it, both two-legged and four-legged alike. I am so honored to bring her voice to you today, to share her with you. We'll be back with Temple Grandin. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country. But if you live in Western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Northwest School of Animal Massage on Vashon Island, we cover the world of animals. This week, June 11th, it's a Behavior Training and Healing Sunday with me. As an animal behavior therapist and trainer, I can help you understand your animal friends and resolve any problems, so plan to give me a call with your questions or about any animal-related topic on your mind. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities, you name it, and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) 
Real people, real life, real radio. Alternative Talk, 1150. And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And on the line with us from Colorado, we have Dr. Temple Grandin. Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. It's great to be here. Good. All right. Well, we're going to discuss some of the contents of one of your many wonderful books titled Animals Make Us Human. But before we talk about that book, I wanted to hear your thoughts on a fun story that's happening this weekend here in Seattle at the Seattle Kennel Club Dog Show Okay. A local miniature pig named Amy has been participating in dog uh, what, pig obedience classes with a bunch of dogs at the Family Dog Training Center in Kent, Washington. And uh, she's going to be making her first public appearance with her owner, Lori, since their story went viral. And uh, this pig has learned is going to be performing healing and spinning and retrieving and jumping and weaving and more alongside a whole bunch of dogs. Well, pigs are very smart, very capable of learning those sorts of things. Well, I didn't figure that would surprise you, that a pig would be participating. Yeah, I mean, everyone says... Well, it's just like, you know, people ride horses, but I've seen several people, uh, saw a person one time put a Western saddle on a steer and trained it to ride. Hmm. So it seems we don't give animals enough credit in general, but I say that about dogs all the time. We don't give them enough credit. Now, one of the things that makes dogs really easy to train is they want to please. Mm. I'm going to suspect that with the pig, there had to be a lot more emphasis on food rewards because food is a big uh, motivation for pigs. And there's uh, one of the best things to treat them with is Oreo cookies. They love them. (laughs) Pigs? Yep. Oh, funny. Wouldn't want to give those to dogs, though, probably. No. No. No, no, because chocolate. Right, right. uh, Pigs, uh, you're going to have to rely, I think, more on the food motivation, where where a lot most dogs will do a lot of things for you because we've bred them to be so social. They want to please you. Yeah. Well, in your book, Animals Make Us Human, um, one of the things that you talk a lot about is animals and emotions. And I find it interesting that it's really been relatively very recently that the science community has begun to accept that Animals do indeed feel emotions much like we do. And you say to understand the to understand behavior and the brain that the key is actually in understanding emotions. Well, you're using the word science very broadly. The neuroscience community has been studying animal emotions since the 60s. Mm. There's old papers um, that show very clearly that animals have emotions. One of the leading researchers is a scientist named Jack Penskep. And he talks about the uh, seven basic emotional systems. These have all been located in the subcortex of animal brains. They would be uh, fear, that then the predators don't eat you up. That's why you have fear. Mm-hmm. And then you have separation distress. He calls it panic. I don't really like that term because it gets mixed up with fear. Because separation distress and fear are two separate brain systems. Separation distress is what happens when the dog's home alone. Mm. Then you have seeking. Uh, you got some Labrador retrievers, they just want to chase the ball and chase the ball. Other labs have been bred to be really quiet, and they make a great uh, service dog. Mm-hmm. And then um, you have rage, anger. And then, of course, you've got sex. They call it lust. And you have play. And then you have the mother-young nurturing behaviors mm-hmm. with the oxytocin system. 
These have been known for a long time in the neuroscience literature, where now where it's been more recently, you know, starting to show up is in the veterinary literature and the animal science literature. Mm. One of the big problems you have in science is people just getting in their silos. And, and now in the last uh, 10 years, the ethologists and the veterinary science and the animal science are starting to accept this research has been known in neuroscience for a long time. Mm, I see. So when you say emotion systems in the brain, that might be kind of hard for a lot of people to grasp. How do these relate to our experiences or to a dog's experience? Well, something that makes you afraid. Um, you know, the, the amygdala, you've got the amygdala in the brain, and that's the fear center. And when something scary happens, that gets turned on. And there's a lot of uh, genetic differences in how easily you can get scared. Mm. You know, genetic differences in temperament. Some animals get scared really easily. Other animals uh, do not get scared really easily. But sudden novelty can be scary. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of animals today are leading such a sheltered life that uh, they're getting afraid of all kinds of stuff because they just aren't seeing very many different things. Yeah. Not getting exposed at a young age. That's right. Yeah. Is this what they mean when they are studying, when they say parts of the brain light up with corresponding emotions? Is that what they're talking well, yes, about? Yes, they're talking there about brain scans. Okay. The old studies actually were very invasive. You'd probably never be allowed to do them now. But there are studies that are absolutely definitive on animal emotions that were done in the 60s and 70s. And you stick an electrode down into the amygdala, and the cat will immediately start hissing. And the, all of the uh, stress hormones are going to get going. Now, if you, now, when you put the animal in an MRI machine, a brain scanner, there'll be an entire network that will light up. So people that have just done MRI will say, oh, well, there's a whole network there involved in fear. Mm-hmm. But with the electrode study, what they found is only one node on the network turns on the fear, and mm-hmm. that's the amygdala. You poke down into the amygdala, you turn on the fear. You poke somewhere else, it doesn't do anything. If you're going to use computer terminology, the amygdala would be the root server. It's it's the thing that turns on the whole rest of the network. And these experiments absolutely prove that there's fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you you go into another part of the brain, and you're going to get aggression. And when I took psychology back in the 60s, uh, they used to call it sham rage or fake rage. You stick an electrode in the thalamus, and the cat hisses, but it's aggression. Mm. And it will attack... uh, 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 a stuffed rat you put in its cage, but it will not attack a styrofoam block. Ah, I see. It's not fake rage. And about five years ago, the scientist that did that experiment, you know, way back in the 60s, said the reason why I called it sham rage is I didn't want my colleagues tearing me apart for, um, you know, for saying it was real rage. It was real Hmm. rage. Hmm. But you see, back then, the idea that animals had emotions, people didn't want to accept that. Right. But these old studies, their 60s and 70s studies, absolutely proved that yeah. animals have a motion system, hmm. and we don't need to repeat them. They've been done, and they showed right. very, very clearly that uh, animals have emotions. Yeah. I have... I've looked a lot of this stuff up, and I have actually have a scientific paper called, uh, I, was, I co-authored it with some other authors, that's in the Journal of Animal Science called Companion Animal um, Symposium, Environmental Enrichment for uh, Zoo Animals, Pets, and, and uh, Exotic Animals. And goes and I, you know, review the emotional systems. Mm. 
I attended your talk recently in Everett, Washington, and you said that your thinking is sensory-based, not word-based, associative, not linear, um, describing uh, the thinking of your brain. Um, How would you describe dogs' thinking, I mean, to be general? Well, dogs, of course, smell is very, very important to dogs, and they can smell all kinds of different odors. So smell is going to get associated with different emotions. I mean, when the dog checks out the local tree, he knows who's been there, or their friend or a foe, you know, who might be in, uh, in estrus, you know, the breed. You know, they, they live in a smell universe. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to things that they'd be afraid of, fearful things tend to be things you either see or things that you hear, usually. Hmm. Um, because out in the wild, um, you know, let's say you're a grazing animal like cattle, which would be a much higher fear animal or a horse. If you if you don't see the predator before it gets you, you're going to get eaten. So fear memories tend to get associated with things you see. And and uh, it's also really specific. There was a German study done by Leonor and Fint, and they found that if you train a horse to tolerate a blue and white umbrella, that does not transfer to a canvas flapping around. Mm. I mean, think about it. Umbrellas look really different than canvas and flags flapping around. You say people overgeneralize way they too much. They overgeneralize, yeah. absolutely. When they're trying to troubleshoot behavior problems, they totally overgeneralize. Yeah. I've had people ask me stuff like, my dog's crazy. What do I do about it? I know. <laughs> I don't know. I know. I don't have enough information to answer that question. Yeah. I just recently wrote an article for City Dog Magazine on separation anxiety, and I just the article was basically about, well, you have to know what what the root of the behavior is. Like, why is the dog exhibiting the behaviors before you can talk about what a solution might be? You have to understand. Well, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And people grossly overgeneralize, and I find they do it on dog behavior problems, horse behavior problems, of problems with autistic kids. People say to me stuff like, what do I do about a a kid that's got behaviors in the classroom. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how old he is. I don't know whether he can talk, what's happening in the classroom. Yeah. I don't have anywhere near enough information. And I get these overgeneralized questions all the time. Mm-hmm. I think that's why it's hard to address behavioral challenges through books or, you know, I mean, you really have to be one-on-one with the individual and, and really dig deeply to understand. I find you've got to really dig into the problem. Yeah. And, and I think it has something to do with, you know, word-based thinking. Because when I'm talking, start asking the person what their dog did or what the kid did, as I ask them the questions, I start to make, I can fabricate a video in my head. I mean, it will often use my own third-grade classroom or a dog that I'm really familiar with. Mm-hmm. But I have to, like, I have to visualize in my mind exactly what the child or the dog was doing mm-hmm. and what brought on the behavior. Mm-hmm. You see, I don't think about it in words. I ask enough questions so I can start to make almost an animation yeah. in my mind of what happened. So that's very, it's a very visual process for you to tune into an animal's experience? Well, and the animal, you know, I think where animal um, behavior is similar to autism is in cognition, which is thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, now in autism, some of the social circuits aren't hooked up. So, you know, animals are going to be much more emotionally connected. So the cognition is what's similar, mm. not the emotion. Oh, interesting. And the thing is, you've got to get away from verbal language. Yeah. If you want to st- understand an animal as living in a sensory-based world. I mean, dogs are very sensitive to tone of voice. 
if you went up to your dog and you went, good dog, good dog, and you said it like that, he'd be cringing. Right. Because he'd be <laughs> reacting to the tone of voice. Yeah. Do you think over the decades people have become even more hyperverbal with technology and everything fast, 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 and people saying sit, 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 sit to their dog? It just, I mean, it has it. Has well, it... they do the same thing to kids. It's yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah. Where I was brought up in the 50s, and if I started to um, pick up my mashed potatoes with my finger, mother didn't scream no. She simply gave me the instructions. She said, use the fork. I think another big problem we have today is we have a lot of younger people today that have not done very many hands-on, totally practical things. Yeah. You know, they're not cooking, sewing, woodworking, welding, painting, uh, making stuff. Yeah. Because when you make stuff and sometimes things go wrong, you have to figure out how to make it work right. You know, that teaches practical problem solving. So what I think we're getting today is everything's getting so abstract. And I'm seeing that in politics, too. And I don't do partisan politics, but I think one of the reasons why the government's turning into such a dysfunctional mess is you've got people going into it that are too far away from the practical world. Yeah. Yeah. So then it becomes hyperverbal. So you had told a story in your talk where you were sitting at a dinner table at, I don't remember where, it was somebody's house, and a... I think an autistic child was sitting across from you and was not being well-behaved and uh, was demanding certain foods and then not eating it, I think, with utensils. Yeah, what happened, it was an, a nice, uh, fairly formal catered dinner. Yeah. It had about 10 people at it. And this boy came in. He was fully verbal, probably 11, 12 years old. Nobody had taught him how to shake hands. I'm seeing too many of these kids getting over shoulders. and They're not learning things like shaking hands. And um, the meal was real plain. It was like beef brisket and potatoes, green beans, bread and butter, you know, rolls and butter. It wasn't anything exotic. Mm-hmm. All the sauces were on the side. And um, the kid decided that he needed to have a chicken dinner brought in from a local restaurant, mm. which was sliced chicken. And then he proceeded to eat it with his hands like a complete slob. And I said, this is a formal dinner used the utensils, and he did. And he actually tried some of the salad. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I just, I didn't yell at him. I just said, you, you know, I told him the instruction, what he should be doing. Mm-hmm. And I also told him that when you're invited out to other people's houses, you don't bring in special food. Mm-hmm. You what, find something to eat there. What did his parents do? He had salad with dressings on the side, green salad. You had rolls and butter. I mean, it was a real plain kind of meal. It wasn't yeah. like it was something exotic. Didn't you say his dad high-fived you after that? Uh, the dad high-fived <laughs> me and mom was rather embarrassed. Yeah. But there's a tendency to just, you know, overcoddle these kids. Yeah. And and I, because of, well, I went to school with a lot of geeky, nerdy kids that would be labeled autistic today, and they all own businesses and been employed all their life because in the 50s, it pounded in the social rules using the teachable moments. Yeah. You know, like if I put my finger in my drink, mother would say, stir it with a spoon. Right. She just gave the instruction. Yeah. And you said tone is so important, too. So these instructions are given in a way where it's not asked as a question, would you do that? It's being told. No, I just said, and I didn't yell it. I just said, I said, this is what I said to him. I said, this is a formal dinner. You should not eat that way at this dinner. Use the utensil. 
exactly how I said it. And he did. Yeah. And he did. Good. Yes. And it's intent. One time I was at a really nice buffet at somebody's house. And their dog, uh, and I was the only one who saw this because I was in the room where the food was. And the dog started going to get a snack off the buffet. And I'd never seen this dog before. And I just went, ah, ah, ah. And he got right down <laughs> and went away from it. Yeah. He knew who that was coming from. Oh, well, he, I, I, that's all I did. And yeah. he slunk off and, yeah. you know, and, you know that, he knew he wasn't supposed to be eating off the buffet. Yeah. And I did that sound just as he started to put his mouth near the food. Mm-hmm. You said in your book, um, everyone who is responsible for animals, and I'm referring to the book called Animals Make Us Human. Yes. Uh, everyone who's responsible for animals, farmers, ranchers, zookeepers, and pet owners, need a set of simple, reliable guidelines for creating good mental welfare that can be applied to any animal in any situation. And the best guidelines we have are the core emotion systems of the brain. And you say just don't stimulate rage, fear, and panic if you can help you it. you want to stimulate the positive emotions like seeking. Right. You know, there are some Labradors that are very, very high seekers, and they can't get enough of ball throwing. And then there's other Labradors where they've been bred to be a service dog, somebody in a wheelchair, and they're very content to lay around, and they could care less about the ball. Yeah. You see there's genetic differences in some are high-seek, others are low-seek. So this is a general question, but what are some of your top suggestions for your average dog owner to stimulate their dogs and activate the seeking and play systems? Because a lot I think of d- one of the problems we've got now is like here in Fort Collins, we have draconian leash laws. Mm. When I was a child, all the dogs ran loose, and we about had no behavior problems. Yeah. But we had a lot of dogs were hit by cars. That was the bad part of it. Right. Uh, we also did not have people breeding deliberately breeding aggressive dogs, which is something that's going on now right and and dogs need to socialize with other dogs and of course everybody's talked about puppy socialization classes but in my book and animals make us human um, i quote some of karen overall's work and she says it's also very important that you you socialize the teenage dogs you know these are dogs mm-hmm. that are like getting around age 18 months two years old um Animals have to learn the give and take of social relationships. Some of the worst animals for fighting, and I don't care what species it is, is animals reared by themselves. Yeah. And then when you put them in with another animal, they just fight and fight and fight and fight because they've never learned that once you become the boss, uh, you don't have to keep fighting. They just keep fighting. I've seen that in horses, and I've seen it in cattle, too. Mm. It's horrid. You talked about the book, um, which I loved, Merle's Door. I actually interviewed Ted Carasotti, the author, um, back yeah. in 2010. Uh, about uh, You talked about that book. Uh, you said, I worry about the fenced-in lives of dogs today. Family dogs aren't free to come and go the way dogs I grew up with were and the way Merle in Merle's Door was. Well, the big problem, I know, is, is one of the biggest problems is the separation distress. I remember when I was getting the Animals Make Us Human manuscript ready to send in to the publisher, and I was over at Cheryl Miller's house. She's my uh, assistant. And I came in about, I don't know, 2.30 in the afternoon. Usually I'm not over there at that time of day. And I had to park far, quite far down the street because there were a lot of cars parked for, for some reason. Walking down the street in front of these houses, and all I was hearing, wine bark, wine bark, mm. coming out of all these houses. And, and dogs need 
social companionship. And I get asked at animal shelters, what's the most important thing? And I said, have a volunteer come in every day and take every dog out for an hour of play and fun with a person every single day. And then you're not going to have them barking and going completely stir-crazy. Dogs need people to socialize with. And then, of course, there's differences genetically in how well they can tolerate being home alone. Because mm. separation distress trait. Right. You know, can either be really high or really low. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, they could get another dog. Uh, uh, but there's, uh, you know, they're leading a life where they're, they don't have any doggy social life. Yeah. How do you, um, are there things that you can recommend just off the top of your head for dogs that have a low tolerance for separation to help build their tolerance? Well, you, one thing you could do is reward confident behavior, yeah. and you gradually train them to uh, tolerate increasingly you know, longer periods away from you. Then if you have a dog that's afraid of thunderstorms and noise, the, you know, everyone he's cowering under the bed, then we're petting him. And if right. you're petting him, when he wags his tail and he's being a little more confident, reward the confident behavior. Mm-hmm. But there's some dogs where they're just so needy on separation distress that uh, they're not going to tolerate it well. That might be a dog where... Maybe there's a retired couple that lives next door that's home all day, and when you go off to work, you put the dog over at their house. Mm-hmm. You know, then he's going to be happy. Yeah, it's a behavior that I'm sure you hear a lot about, and I hear a lot about as well in my work around the Seattle area with dog behavior is separation, separation anxiety, separation anxiety, and well, a lot yeah, of times, and then they've chewed the house all the right. pieces, and yeah, and you know, then when the hotels that allow dogs, you know, will say, well, the owner will say, well, my dog never makes any noise. Well, uh, excuse me, I was in a room where the dog whined them all night. Mm-hmm. And the people got back at 3 o'clock in the morning. Right. And every time somebody walked down the hall, he'd start barking and whining. Yeah. And this yeah. is just because the dog wants companionship. He's lonely. Well, then I thought maybe we might bring him down to the hotel office. But then we opened up the door. I got we actually I actually got the front desk. We went up and they opened up the door to the room. And he was this great, big, huge, great thing growling we opened the door in a really flimsy cage i go nope shut the door <laughs> yeah and i didn't get any sleep that night yeah yeah Aww. that uh, uh weren't gonna mess with him the cage was real flimsy yeah you don't want to be reaching into a cage no like i that. no way no no way we just shut the door and i got no sleep that night oh uh, hotels can be tough it was miserable yeah and every time he, 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 someone would walk by, down that hall, I think he thought his owner was coming back, and he would be whining and barking. Mm. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll be talking more with Dr. Temple Grandin. We're talking about her particular book today, Animals Make Us Human. She's also the author of a number of different wonderful publications, including Animals in Translation. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Temple Grandin. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? 
Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me, host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, we're joined by listener favorite returning guest Dan Millman, author of The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. In his new book, The Hidden Room, Return of the Peaceful Warrior, Dan Millman intertwines fiction and autobiography and shows us how to stay centered, focused, and present. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net and follow Vicki on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. And tune in every Monday at noon and Fridays at 6 a.m. here on KKNW. Self-help, healing, spirituality, and more on Alternative Talk, 1150. And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. No doubt she would in a minute, man. She'd face the bullet, oh, she'd face the knife. Just to keep my butt from the frying pan. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And we're back with Temple Grandin, who's the author of a number of wonderful books. The one we're focusing on today is called Animals Make Us Human. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. It's great to be here. So there was uh, one part of this, of your book, um, on your section about dogs, and you talk about other animals as well. That uh, really is an important topic to, to, to bring light to is... You say that our whole image of wolf packs and alphas is completely wrong, that instead wolves live the way people do in families. That's right. And I think one of the reasons why uh, problems uh, got started with the wolf pack thing is a lot of the original packs that they were were, um, studying in the wild were put together packs, Mm. you know, where you just put a lot of unrelated animals together. And I, they ended up not studying what really was in the wild. And that's the work of uh, Dr. Mensch, mm-hmm. and uh, and he's referenced extensively in Animals Make Us Human. And then we also discussed uh, Caesar Milan. And I want to credit my co-author, my wonderful co-author, Catherine Johnson. Uh, she also did a lot of work on this chapter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, see, in Caesar Milan's situation, he had a bunch of strays, you know, and problem dogs. You put them all, you know, it's a put-together pack. And in that situation, you probably do need an alpha. Mm-hmm. I, you see, this is where one size doesn't always always fit all. Also, there's a lot of personality differences in dogs. Yeah, You've got some very confident, low-fear dogs where, yes, uh, they, they might get aggressive. They, they're going to have to sit before you feed them. And then you've got some other dogs, the high-fear dog, and if you get at least a bit harsh with that dog, he's going to get uh, all fearful and upset and maybe get PTSD from being harshly treated. Right. You know, there's there's uh, genetic differences in these emotional systems. Some animals are low fear, others are high fear, others are uh, are uh, you know high or low separation distress. Mm. Another factor that was talked about in is in the wolf 
and the breeds of dogs that have a have a lot of <clears throat> a lot of wolf behaviors. There's a mechanism where the dog submits, and there's been various studies that have shown that uh, you know the breeds like from the King Charles Spaniel, you know, in the lab that's been bred out. Uh, they don't know how to submit. Now in labs it doesn't really matter because they're so gentle and friendly and non-aggressive. It just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But if you have a dog that's got any kind of aggressive tendencies. Uh, and you've read out the, the submission uh, behavior that the wolf has, uh, it won't back down. Yeah. You know, it, it's, uh, we've, we've bred behaviors out. And there are situations where the alpha thing is true, but in the natural wolf pack, it's a family. And, yes, and the head of the family is the, the parents are the head of the family. Yeah. Well, you said you think it's an in, a really interesting question why another uh, researcher that you referenced, Adolf Murray, uh, yeah. that his observations of wolves in families didn't catch on with the public the way that the captive wolf research did, especially since the wolf family idea makes so much more sense. Well, you see, in a lot of the captive wolves were put together packs. Yeah. It wore, they weren't natural. Um, they weren't, you know, packs forming naturally. Were there relatively just way more studies done on captive wolves, and that's why that information stuck in the industry? Well, I think sometimes it's who gets their information out there, too. I mean, one thing that's known, let's just take computer technology, for example. You know, sometimes the best operating system isn't the one that that actually gets out there and gets used. You know, sometimes it's the technology that's the best advertised. I mean, I know that's true in prefabricated livestock equipment. I'm not going to mention any names, but one of the yeah. cheapest little pieces of junk that there is for squeeze shoot. Uh, yeah, everybody buys them. They do a great job of marketing. Yeah, I think the shoot's a piece of junk, but some of the other ones they don't they don't market them as well. Well, and I think similar things like that can happen with, um, you know, just how things get publicized. Too. Oh yeah, any business. Yeah. Well, it makes sense to me, given that we do, after all, live in a patriarchal society that values men more than women, that an alpha male model might be heavily marketed. I mean, maybe that's not the reason. Oh, but it, it might. Yeah, it might. Yeah, there's a lot of things. You know, the thing that really you know blew my mind was how the neuroscience research, it shows clearly that animals have emotions. Mm-hmm. I never got into the veterinary literature or the animal science literature or the behavior literature until relatively recently, I'd say in the last 10 years. Yeah. And I studied that stuff when I was in college in psychology, and they, on that cat experiment, they call it sham rage, which means fake rage. Yeah. Well, when you look back on it, that's completely ridiculous. Yeah, it, it, it is, uh, seems like, I, I interviewed Mark Beckoff a couple times about animals and emotions, and it really, it's like this uh, new... <laughs> Like new idea, but like you're saying, this has been known in in another field of science for decades. Yeah, it's been known for decades, and mm. and uh, there's and the emotion systems are very much like the emotion systems in people. You know, now there's been some confusion among some people when I talk about animal behavior being like autism. The part that's like autism is the cognition, yeah, the specificity of memory, the sensory based memory. The emotional systems would not be like autism. That would be much more like normal people. Uh, and there's been interesting studies done where people listen to dogs barking, and then they 
they ask the judge, is it happy or sad? Or, and, and it's pretty accurate. People can figure that out yeah. without any training. Yeah. Well, you say, you know, this whole idea that the, the whole alpha model that we've, I mean, how many books and publications in the dog training industry are based off of this idea? And it actually turns out that that's really not quite right, that they really more live in families and yeah, you say there are some um, hardwired behaviors for exerting dominance because I can remember I had these pigs when I was at uh, getting my PhD and I had this one young female and she would just fight me and run me out of the pen. She was the boss hog, <laughs> and pigs, um, you know, and I, yelled, and I said no and stuff to her. That didn't do any work, any yeah. good. And pigs will will exert dominance by pushing and shoving against the neck of the other animal. Uh. And I tried that on this pig. She was a uh, still small enough where I could overpower her easy, and I, and I shoved her up against the fence, uh, against the neck, uh-huh. and I became the boss. She oh. no longer would chase after me anymore. Wow. Yeah, and it was just a single time that I did it, but I did it the way another pig would do it. Right. Yeah, because yelling at her did not work. Yeah, otherwise you just have to bring in Oreos. Well, she... Um, you know, she was, you know, it, her, her aggression was territorial. Yeah. But then after that, that one thing where I shoved up against the fence, like the way another pig does it, and there's a hardwired behavior of pushing and shoving on the neck, it stopped. Mm-hmm. And I just did it once. And she, I was boss hog after that. So there's, um, and I can remember, uh, and I write about this in Animals Make Us Human, a dog, we had all the dogs in our neighborhood, and there was two labs, and there was two goldens. And our dog, Andy, would go over to Lightning's house, and Lightning was dominant over Andy. Andy'd go over there, and he'd roll over on his back, do the submission behavior, and then he'd go play with Lightning. And he'd go over onto, onto Lightning's property and do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and they'd play together. But Lightning, you know, he would do the submission behavior to Lightning before they would play. And Lightning never came over to our, our house even though he was free to do it. Hmm. He let uh, let Andy come to him, huh? Andy would go over there. Mm. And then we had two, there were two labs in the neighborhood, and one of them was a real heavy set, lazy lab that would be the perfect service dog, and then there was this other skinny, frisky lab, and all she wanted to do was chase the ball. Yeah. She would just keep dropping the ball in front of you, dropping the ball in front of you, and just get you to chase it. Yeah. Well, I think in helping, you know, people who live with dogs to understand, because I get asked all the time, you know, how do I, you know, I know that I'm supposed to be alpha or, you know, and it's like this concept that people have a really hard time connecting with. And now it really makes sense. Well, the thing is, if you've got a, you know, a very low fear, kind of high aggressive kind of dog, you do have to, uh, okay, you're going to have to sit before I feed you. You want something, you have to obey me first. You're going to sit before you go outside. But then you've got some little, little fluffy, nervous little fluffy, and uh, if you just look at it with stern look, it gets scared. You don't need to do that with little fluffy. Yeah. See, this is where there are individual differences in animals, and I talk about this in my book, um, uh, Genetics and Behavior of Domestic Animals, which I edited along with a lot of other really good co-authors in it. And there are individual differences. And you see where Caesar Milan has been successful is, okay, you get all these put-together kind of really aggressive dogs. He's really confident. And his method worked with that. But I remember one of his early episodes where he held down some little fluffy thing to clip its whiskers, and, it's, and it was just scared and growling the whole time because it was scared. It was fearful. And he shouldn't have done that. 
yeah. the little fluffy thing. Yeah. You know, that was wrong. Yeah. Yeah, dogs are all unique individuals, just like well, people. Well, you see people, you know, even things that have found in humans with post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, some soldiers get it, others don't, even though they were exposed to the same awful stuff. Mm. You guys, some people and some animals are more fearful than others. We need to look at genetic traits, like a music mixing board. And you could, you know, you've got a slot where you can slide the control up and down for fear, mm. another one for separation distress, another one for seeking. And I was a geneticist that came up with that way of looking at personality differences. Yeah, that makes sense. Music mixing board. You've got a separate slot for moving the little lever up and down for each one of those emotional systems. Yeah. You say that dog owners need to be the leader the same way parents do. Good parents set limits to teach their kids how to behave nicely, and that's exactly what dogs need also. Well, that's right. Yeah, and that's more like a parent, so it's still a leader. Right. The other mistake that people make is they think they've got to force. We're going to take a dog and we're going to alpha roll it. Yeah. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense because when Andy would go over to Lightning's house, Lightning didn't throw Andy on the ground. Right. He did it on his own. Yeah, it was offered. And then Patricia McConnell's got some very, very nice uh, nice uh, stuff that we quoted. Mm-hmm. And she likes to, you know, test out puppies and the young. And are they willing to just get roll over and be gently petted on the bellies? And and uh, she's got a very nice book on uh, emotions and looking at uh, facial expressions and body postures and dogs to tell the emotions. It's a great book on dog emotions by Patricia McConnell. Yeah, she's wonderful. I interviewed her uh, on yeah. the show as well. She's excellent. Um, so one of the things that you talked about, and I know, you know, to your point that every dog is so different. And so if you're going to, uh, communicate to a dog that they're, that whatever they're doing is something that they shouldn't do, the style or manner in which you do that is going to depend on the dog that you're working with. But that generally you said that a firm, but not loud. Well, that's right. That's the same thing you do. But that was the 50s style of parenting. Yeah. Like, I'd go over to the Woods house, and if I, um, I remember, or over to Culver's house, and I remember one time I cut all my meat up before I ate it, and Mrs. Culver goes, that's bad manners. You cut one piece off at a time. Mm. She was more strict than my mother. Mm. She just gave the instruction, and boy, you obeyed her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, you've talked a lot about... And there was no yelling and screaming. It, mm. it, was a, it was calmly, when the mistakes were made, giving the instructions. Yeah. You talked a lot about your mother and how she raised you and how much you benefited from the way that she that's just right. she just knew right. what to do somehow, it seemed. Well, some of this is old-fashioned 50s parenting mm-hmm. because it was the same way at other places. I remember at school, when I was in elementary school, uh, they threw some ice cream and some little dishes, chocolate ice cream, and they're like half-melted. And I leaned over and laughed at it like a dog. I'll never forget. The teacher just picked it up very quietly and said, you're not a dog. And I got no dessert. Uh, I never forgot it. Yeah. That's a teachable moment. Yeah, well, not, I'm not going to do that again. You got your no, ice cream taken away, that huh? Again. That's right. <laughs> and she didn't yell and scream. She just picked it up quietly and said, you're mm-hmm. not a dog. Mm-hmm. And that there are consequences for certain behaviors and that that's okay. It's just how you well, learn. Well, yeah, and the consequences for temper tantrums was no television for one night. Mm. And one of the things that Mother did is when I was throwing this big fit, she, she didn't yell at me, I'm going to take the TV away tonight. 
she just put me in my room, and when I was quieted down, she said, you can join the family now, but you know the rule. There'll mm. be no television tonight. It's important to role model both parents of children and I think people with their dogs to role model behavior that like how you want your dog to act. You want to act that way. Well, and the other thing I think the problem with dogs is I don't think they're getting anywhere near enough exercise. Yeah, mental and physical. Because I find myself if I don't do my hundred sit-ups every night, I don't sleep very well. Oh, that's a lot. Yep. I had to have an exercise that I there was no excuse not to do it, and I could do it in any hotel room. Yeah. It took me six months to get up to that. And I do have my hands forward, but I still do 100 setups without stopping. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, you're in, you're in good shape. Well, you've got to, you know, if I don't do it, I get all kind of stir-crazy and have trouble sleeping. Mm. One of the things that you said is, uh, I think it was about a an environment that's, uh, under-stimulating causes hyperactive animals. Well, yeah, they just get completely, completely bored. Yeah. Uh, another thing that we need, to, I want to talk about before we get done is fear memories. Okay, let's do it. You can get a horse or a dog that's afraid of just certain things, and they oftentimes will get afraid of something they were looking at or hearing right at the moment when something bad happened. Mm. Like I knew a horse that was terrified of black hats. Yeah. And white hats were fine. And it tends to be specific because it is sensory based. Now, a common generalization that a lot of dogs make, unfortunately, is ladies are good and guys are bad. Yeah. That's a real common one. And so they, they just have some sort of fear experience with a man and then they just <laughs> then they just. Well, they had, a, had an experience where a guy hit them and um, I talked to another lady and her dog was terrified of men with baseball hats. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Well, because the guy with a baseball hat did something to the dog. Yeah. And they tend to lock into some obvious feature, like baseball hats or beards. Yeah. There was an elephant at a zoo that was terrified of men with beards. Mm. Another elephant was terrified of diesel-powered equipment that mm. ran with gas. It was fine. If it ran with diesel, it was scary. Hmm. It's specific because it's sensory-based. So how would you take a dog that was afraid of men in baseball hats and try to get that dog to feel more comfortable around men with baseball hats? Is well, it... you, you lots of times can gradually desensitize it. Now, the more high-strung and fearful the genetics is, the harder it's going to be to desensitize yeah. it. Do you think that you, know, the... you can gradually work on it and 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 you reward confident behavior? Okay, you have a guy there with a baseball hat on. Yeah. And you see any confident behavior, you reward that. Another thing is to have the have the man involved with fun activities that the dog mm-hmm. likes to do. Yep. Because that turns the seeking system on. And when you turn on the seeking system, that tends to turn fear off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I had a in, kind of really scary experience where I avoided a car accident when a board came off a trailer on the freeway. Oh, wow. And, and my vision locked onto this board and seeking got turned on and and the board was like floating my vision slowed down the way it's supposed to and i managed to move over on into the uh, breakdown lane and avoid hitting this board mm. and then as soon as the, that happened the switch flipped in the brain and, I, and it switched over to fear and then it took me half an hour to calm down there actually <laughs> is a switch in the brain you know, the nucleus accumbens that can switch the brain either to fear mode or seek mode. Mm. 
and then the tendency for the brain to either be in fear or seek is, uh, you know, genetics has an effect on whether it's going to be more fear or more seek. Also, stressful experiences in puppyhood or case of people in childhood can also bias it more towards fear. Yeah. That's uh, some more recent work, and unfortunately, we, it, there's only a little bit of that quoted in Animals Make Us Human because I found the papers after we published that book. I see. There's a lot of really interesting research going on around uh, dog behavior and, um, uh, you know, more and more and more. And it's really interesting to see what's what's coming out and what people are learning. Well, there's a and lot sharing. of very interesting things. Yeah. Uh, there's a conference, an annual conference that just started a few years ago called Sparks, the Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science. And uh, there's been some great presentations um, in that. Uh, it happens no, every year. Been, been, you know, they're learning more and more of there's things on which side the tail wags on mm-hmm. lateralization. Yeah. So let's uh, let's give out the the titles of your books for people who are interested in dogs and how to get them. So we have Animals Make Us Human, which is the book that we've been focusing on today. Yeah, co-authored with Katherine Johnson. And I want to make sure she gets lots of credit. Okay. And then and uh, then my other book that I also co-authored with Katherine Johnson is Animals in Translation. Okay. And they're available on Amazon and other, you know, in Barnes and Noble and various places. Yep. Uh, I also have a book called Genetics and the Behavior of Domestic Animals, which is a textbook. It's expensive, but mm. for somebody that's really deeply interested, uh, we just uh, revised that in uh, 2013. Mm. And for somebody that's really interested in genetics, uh, it'd be worth getting that. And it's got a. Uh, the student of Belyev, who did that original work with the foxes, where they bred foxes oh, for tameness, yeah, and they turned the fox into a black and white border collie. Right, right. Uh, his student has got a, a paper in there. Okay. There's um, also papers on horses and pigs, and uh, got a lot of great co-authors in there. Yeah. Well, speaking of pigs, I look forward to seeing this little miniature pig uh, performing obedience tasks at the Seattle Kennel Club Dog Show, which is this weekend. Well, I'm sure that will go yeah. viral. I'll have to make sure I look it up. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, Dr. Temple Grandin, it has been a pleasure and honor to have you on the show today and to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time and the work it's that you do. It's been really, really great, and thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Big, big, big thank you to Dr. Temple Grandin for all your brilliant work. Thanks again so much, and thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud. Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country, but if you live in Western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it.